Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and I'm oh, totally flying solo today, but I don't mind because we're going to do something super fun and I really enjoy this subject, the subject that I did at university a lot, so I'm kind of excited about this. But I don't really think I need to introduce my next guest because he's been on here so many times that I think he should have his own podcast on History Hack. And if you agree with this, just send us loads of messages and just be like, yes, he should have his own segment. So... We have Jonathan Clements, who, well, like I said, he's been on History Hack so many times. He talks, has talked about Empress Wu, the Pirate King. Uh, he, I don't know, Jonathan, you've done so much on History Hack that I just, it's mind-blowing. I but, actually forgot one. I, I thought, wow, I should get in touch with them and do a thing about weaponized music. And then it turned out I'd already done it with you and I just forgot. You did, hold on, you did another one. You did uh, Confucianism as well. Oh, yeah. And Chinese food. I did Chinese food as well as my first one. Do you know what? I think we should just get you on to do this regularly because <laughs> Chinese history isn't spoken about enough, especially in in, uh, in the Western world. But you're actually here to talk about, well, something different. We're talking about Taiwan. It's mm-hmm. going to be part of your new book, which is coming out in January 2024. But you, people are going to be able to pre-order this. Can you just let us know what's what is the name of this book that we're going to be talking about? Um, the book's called Rebel Island: uh, The Incredible Story of Taiwan, and it is a history of Taiwan from prehistoric times right up to the election, which is coming up in January 2024, when Ooh. the Chinese are store, sure to start throwing missiles across the strait and causing all kinds of trouble, um, because you know Taiwan is an incredibly delicate issue that no one should talk about because everyone gets into trouble for talking about it well exactly this is well this is such a hot topic right now especially even places like eastern europe to do with like the russia thing and ukraine and everything else taiwan is at the top of our list as well it's like what is happening there is also going to flex what's going to happen in russia it is just so chaotic so you're on topic right now you've got a really hot topic book coming out so hopefully people will learn a little bit more about taiwan I haven't done anything from this time period. I worked a little bit on later Taiwan. So hopefully I'm going to learn something new and exciting. So you basically, it's all about 1867. This this is where we're kind of like kicking this off. And you've got an American merchant vessel. What is happening here? Why are the Americans in in Taiwan or in China at this point anyway? Well, I mean, the, 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 the historical reasons for, for, for people being there is, is a matter of uh, something that crops up in almost every book I write, 
which is technological determinism. Uh, I just love the way that in new inventions change the way that history works and and the, the requirements of history. Um, and uh, and there's a philosopher called uh, Paul Virilio who talks about something called the integral accident, which is that every time you invent a new piece of technology, something new can get cocked up. So, you know, until there was email, there was no spam. And until there were trains, there were no train wrecks. And until there were ships, there were no shipwrecks. Um, and, and what we get in the 19th century is the, the technology of the coal-powered ship, which suddenly makes the world so much smaller. Um, and so you have, in 1850, you have uh, Herman Melville in Moby Dick saying the steamships, the whalers, are knocking on the doors of Japan. Um, and he was right within four years that, you know, in, in fact, because the Americans are taking over the Pacific, they're, they're, they're looking for places to trade. They're looking for um, coal ports for their whalers. Um, uh, they start pushing themselves uh, on the, the countries on, on the coast. They say, we need a place for coal. We need a place for our you know, safe uh, place for our sailors to go and so on. Um, and, and the same thing is happening from the other side because you have, you know, all the European countries showing up in the Far East. Hong Kong. Uh, becomes uh, a, a British possession in uh, after the Opium Wars. Um, P&O ferries start shipping stuff to Hong Kong in 1854. There is a huge number of foreign ships around the coasts of China and Japan um, that, that simply weren't there before. Um, and the thing is, is that this is lawless territory. This is wild. There's no, there are no lighthouses. Um, there's no deals in place to um, uh, to deal with uh, um, sailors who are shipwrecked or, or ships that run out of coal or fuel or anything. Um, and so uh, between 1861 and 1867, for example, 28 British or American ships sunk in Chinese waters. 28. 28. Actually, not even Chinese waters. This is Taiwanese waters. Um, so. Shit. So you have all of these ships um, desperately trying to get involved in the commerce and the and um, and the trade that's available to them uh, now, as China is forced open after the Opium Wars. Um, and and, and the, the the case that we're really talking about today in 1867 is the Rover, which was um, it's a merchant vessel. It's sailing up the coast of China, and they don't really want to get too close to the coast of China because it's so dangerous. So they figure, oh, we'll go round the back. We'll we'll sail around the outside, around Taiwan, stay out of trouble. We're a steamship. We can do that. Of course, the trouble is, is that in the south of Taiwan, there are ten miles of reefs un under underwater. Um, a place called the, the Seven Sisters is particularly dangerous. Uh, they're called the Seven Sisters because at low tide, you can see seven of them. At high tide, you can only see about two. And that's what the rover ran into. Um, the uh, There was supposed to be a survey of the area, but no one really, they, they kind of fudged it and went, ah, that'll be fine. No one's going to sail here anyway. So, you know, the, the, the rover is going up the coast of Taiwan and, and, and the captain, uh, Captain Hunt, Joseph Hunt, He's, he's looking at his charts and it just goes, oh, don't go there. There's some reefs. And he's like, oh, we'll risk it. Uh, and the rover smashed into a reef and got a hole in its hull and started to uh, to tip over. And so the crew of the rover, including his wife, uh, Mercy Hunt, uh, they all crammed themselves into these lifeboats. And it's a 17 hour rowing trip to get to the coast because it, it's 10 miles. It, it, it's 10 kilometers of, 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 um, of reefs. 
uh, and so that, so they're quite a way out from from the island, uh, and and they have to row against uh, these very powerful currents because Taiwan's like a leaf shape. So you've got the Pacific kind of ramming itself in on either side of this kind of fork, this kind of land shaped fork. Um, and after after seventeen hours, they kind of slosh ashore um, on this beach. Um, and uh, there is a a, a, tri- a tribe woman, a, a, a tribeswoman, I suppose you call it. There's a native Paiwan, a Koalit Paiwan uh, tribeswoman, um, on the beach staring at them, like, "What the fuck are you doing here?" Um, and and Mercy Hunt, uh, the captain's wife, she figures, "Well, sisters, we're in this together. I, I'm sure we can we can hammer something out." And she goes up to this woman and she goes, "Hello. Uh, as you can see, we've been shipwrecked." Um, I've got some money here and I want to give you this money. Could you find someone to help us get back to civilization? No offense, but you know, civilization. Um, and the woman, and the woman just stares at her and then kind of runs off and she goes, and, and so they don't know what's going to happen. The, the woman comes back with an army of, of warriors and they kill almost everyone from the rover. They kill her. They kill her husband. They kill the 14 uh, uh, American, uh, white American uh, crew members of the ship, all of the Chinese crew. One or two of them get away. There are different accounts. Um, and they, uh, uh, and so this single or this, these two survivors um, manage to make it back to a, 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 a Chinese village, uh, a village of Chinese settlers on, on Taiwan. Uh, and they explain what's happened, um, and so the news gets out that the the rover, the the crew of the rover, have been massacred. Um, and you know this has happened a number of times before, but the rover is a particularly important incident because of the captain's wife, because Mercy Hunt comes from a very rich family, and they 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 assume they they presume that she's dead. But they, they, they said, we want to give her a Christian burial. We will offer two and a half thousand dollars for the return of her remains. Um, and to put that in context, that's what a working man would earn in a year uh, in uh, in 1867. So suddenly this is an incident that attracts a lot of interest from a lot of literal gold diggers. I'm a little bit stunned with this whole typical, I don't want to say typically American because everyone's going to like launch themselves at me, but it's just <laughs> so American to just go, hi, you know, we've got a problem. No idea who you are. Here's a load of money. Sort it <laughs> out for us. <laughs> well, um, that, I think that is unfair in this case, because I think that's a very uh, European attitude as well. Um, we, as, as Europeans, as inheritors of, of, of European culture, have a vague sense of the law of the sea. Um, which is something that has been kind of bubbling up since the time of Justinian, this idea that if you are shipwrecked, people are obliged to help you. Um, and and that, that ties into all kinds of, of other things. You know, there's an international agreement today between countries that, you know, you will show you, you will come to someone's help aid in an emergency. Um, and, and tied into that as well is, is another concept, which is also quite European, of the law of salvage, that if someone's ship is in trouble, and you help them, you are entitled to a share of what that rescue is worth. And that's something that, you know, has to be kind of hammered out beforehand. And none of this exists on the coast of, of Taiwan. These are these are Koalut Paiwan people. They they live in a very, very small area where, uh, and, and, you know, literally your head will get cut off if, by, by the enemy if you stray outside it. 
Um, they have a, a, a very uh, insular view. They certainly don't trust foreigners, particularly uh, white people and Chinese people are the two things they really can't stand uh, because they've got Chinese settlers encroaching on their territory. They've got, uh, you know, these, these white these white shipwrecks that keep ramming into the coast of their land and then starting fights for no reason. Um, and, and, and so, uh, so, so, yeah, I, I, I think you're being unfair to the Americans there. I, I think this is a very, uh, Anglo-American European attitude to adopt. And, and, and part of the problem with Taiwan in this period is that none of these rules apply there. And so as far as the American government and indeed many of the, the other European, uh, the, the European governments are concerned, Taiwan is less of an island and more of a marine hazard. Interesting. I mean, I'm kind of interested to, you touched on this a little bit more, hmm. literally just moments ago, but hmm. why did they actually end up killing, why did they kill them at the end of the day? They're... Ah, well, the thing is, luckily, in this particular case, we have kind of, not, not a post-mortem, we, we have a report by the by, by the tribe's people themselves, so we know exactly why this happened. Wow, really? Um, yeah, yeah, really, because because of the events that unfolded after the rover, someone actually sat down with with one of the Paiwan tribesmen and said, "Why did you do this?" And he goes, "Oh, well, I mean, since you ask," and he kind of you know reeled out this huge list of reasons. Um, the uh, first thing, very unluckily for the crew of the rover, they came ashore at exactly the wrong time. They came ashore at this seasonal event, this kind of ritual event, where the men of the Koalut Paiwan. Uh, were obliged to take uh, an enemy head in order to win a wife. Um, and so of all the days to come walking out of the of the sea and say, hi, we're from somewhere else, that was exactly the wrong day to do it. Um, also, uh, the Koalut were deeply suspicious of foreigners. They had had several um, encounters before with unnamed ships that had caused trouble for them. Um, so they were very suspicious of white people anyway. Um, as I said, they were very suspicious of the Chinese uh, because there are Chinese settlers uh, encroaching on the land all the time. Um, so, so those are those are some of the reasons. Um, ironically, um, these these the tribal areas, the tribal lands, are very very small in this area, and uh, it turned out that if they'd come ashore three hundred yards down the beach, they would have been in a different tribal territory where they would have been welcomed, given a cup of hot chocolate and sent home. Um, uh, so, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's one of those like terrible, terrible disasters. Um, and, and things actually got worse and worse for everybody um, because as far as the tribe were concerned, their action was legitimate, you know, and, and there's no legal basis to say that it wasn't. That's their land. You come ashore, they're in a head cutting off kind of mood. Um, you, you take your chances. However, uh, among the Koal at Paiwan, there was a, a taboo not to kill women. Ah. And here's the thing. Mercy Hunt spent most of her days in these kind of big, you know, crinoline dresses uh, like any other Victorian uh, lady. But because her clothes got wet as they evacuated the ship, she was dressed as one of the sailors. She'd taken clothes from some of the crew. So she was dressed as a man. And the woman that she approached did not realize she was a woman and neither did the people who attacked them. And so when the Paiwan eventually found out that they killed a woman, they were absolutely aghast because cutting off the heads of men within within their rules, that's fine. Killing a woman, that's going to bring a curse down upon them. So and what actually happened then is that they took her body and they threw it outside the tribal territory. They kind of chucked it to the edge of the village where some dogs started gnawing on the body. Um, 
so uh which of course makes life even more difficult for, for reacquiring her remains um so all of these factors kind of come together uh in in the um in, in the incident around the rover which just kind of added uh to the the tension there must have been as you've mentioned previously a reaction by the americans the british and everybody outside of taiwan i mean even china must have had some sort of reaction to all of this yeah Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, let's try and take it in, in chronological order. Um, the British and the Americans both had kind of ships in the area, uh, military ships in the area, and they kind of popped over to where the wreck site was and tried to uh, come ashore. Um, I suspect mainly because of the money. I mean, we're, that's a lot of money that's on offer. So if someone to suddenly say, you know what, let's, let's pop over and see if we can, you know, um, teach those tribesmen a lesson. That's that. I mean, maybe it's something that occurs to you if you're just happens to be sailing past. But I think you know, two and a half thousand dollars is a lot is a lot of money. Um, so uh, they they did try and get ashore. Um, they were quite shocked by the reaction because the Kowalut Paiwan were fantastic um, musketeers. They bought firearms from the Chinese settlers. They were really good with them, and they really knew the lay of the land as well. I mean, this is something that I didn't really appreciate till recently, but um, these hunting communities, every man uh, of adult age has a uh, an area that he's supposed to hunt in. He has his little hunting ground, and no one else can go there. Um, but hunting is not a case of wandering through the forest, taking pot shots at deer. It's a long-term husbandry. They actually grow thickets to steer their prey in certain directions and they plant they plant um crops in certain places to kind of lure in their prey and so these american marines kind of wandering ashore are actually wandering into an area that these tribesmen not only know intimately but in some way have created they've created these kind of kill zones <clears throat> so it didn't go well for them so as a result um the American consul in in Sharman, in, in in the town that we now call Amoy, on the coast of China, um, he was technically also responsible for Taiwan because Taiwan at the time was supposedly part of the province of Fujian. <clears throat> and so um, the American consul tries to get the Chinese to to say, well, we you know we'll we'll send someone to to deal with it, um, and they don't. Um, they kind of fob him off and they say, well, we, we can't really, that, that part of the island isn't really under our jurisdiction. There's not a lot we can do about it. And in the end, he takes matters into his own hands. And 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 this this is a fantastic guy. Um, he's one of those historical figures that you just, you just can see him being the star of his own movie uh, or possibly the villain. Um, his name was Charles Legendre and he came from France originally. But he moved to America, where he enlisted uh, in the uh, in the army during the Civil War, um, and he served uh, during the Civil War. Uh, rose up very quickly through the ranks. Was very badly wounded. He was shot in the face, um, lost part of his nose and one eye. Um, and uh, at the end of it all, he ended up as the consul uh, in in China. And he was a he's one of these you know. As you probably know, if you're a foreign-born American, you can never be president. So, you know, this is why Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, kind of stopped at a certain level uh, in his political career. And the same goes for Charles Legendre. He'd love to be a politician. He'd love to work his way up the ranks. But basically, consul in Fujian is as high as he can go. Um, and so he has taken it upon himself to be the guy to solve this problem. Um, and his bosses say to him, you this isn't in your jurisdiction do not get involved in this he ignores them completely 
uh, he gets um, a, a permission uh, to accompany a Chinese force that might be going to uh, look for uh, the Koal at Paiwan. Uh, and then the moment that they get onto the ship to go there, he takes over and he leads this army into Koal at Paiwan territory. Um, and uh, he, I mean, and this is a, a man who's already been behaving very suspiciously. He's already been reprimanded for taking a little bit too much initiative when it comes to these sorts of things. Um, but his finest hour, in many ways, is is his dealings with the Koal at Paiwan, because he arrives at the head of a of a very powerful force that's powerful enough to impress the, the Paiwan leaders and so he actually gets to sit down uh, with the leader um, of, uh, of of what turns out to be a confederacy of 18 different tribes. Let's stick with Charles Legendre because mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I've been, people can't see this, but I've been face palming so far and I can just see this getting so much worse. So at the end of the day, is he the right man for the job or is he just a total, utter moron? There are very mixed feelings about this, Alina. Um, there are a lot of people who seem very supportive of Charles Legendre. Um, and I think there are periods in history, particularly when you know colonialism and imperialism is not looked upon as a bad thing, where this kind of go-getting, proactive behaviour on his part is praised. I mean, there's a certain there's a little there's a little bit of Julius Caesar about him in the kind of, well, I'm going to go off and do this thing. And if I win, then we've got another province. Uh, And if I lose, I'll be dead. Um, He was an incredibly um, confident man. You might call him arrogant. Uh, It depends on how justified you think his confidence was Um, there. I've seen articles about him that are full of praise for his ability to to sort out this issue because if he you know he does sort it out he gets a deal with the tribesmen that if a ship is wrecked again they can put up a red flag and the tribesmen will come to help them and they'll sort out the money later so you know he does in fact achieve that um but he is obsessed with taiwan as a strategic point of great value and he thinks that a European or American power should take control of Taiwan and use it as a base. If the Chinese can't handle stuff there, the white people should step in and deal with it. And he's actually written a book called How to Deal with China, where he says this is how you should do it. And and he's give, he's handed it around the the the, uh, the international community uh, in China, acting as if its advice is given to the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State has told him to shut up, stop talking about this. You don't know what you're talking about. But but Charles Legendre is on the case and he's going to sort this out. And when it comes to negotiations, um, so he, he reaches uh, the, the 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 location where this all happened, and it turns out that the the local ruler is a man called Garuli Guj Chuck, although um, the Americans call him Toki Tok. He's this kind of 50-year-old figure who somehow managed to to get 18 tribes to cooperate with each other in this kind of local confederation. Um, and Toki Tok is the man who explains to him what, why this has happened and why the Koal at Paiwan are aggrieved. Uh, and he tries to help him kind of get together. Um, they, they start looking for the... the personal effects of the of the crew members they're like well you know we found mercy hunt's watch we found mercy hunt's hairpiece oh this is a leg bone it might be her and you know so they're trying to get stuff together in the middle of negotiations uh very famously legendre says if this if you don't stop you know uh causing trouble for me i'm going to pluck out my my own eye and and i'm going to stick it on the table and it can watch proceedings and when they continue to argue he you know 
he pulls out his fake eye and sticks it on the table. And this is very impressive for the tribe. And they're like, okay, well, we're, we're going to maybe listen to this one now. It's not a negotiating tactic I would recommend, but it's the kind of nutball thing that Charles de Gendre would do. Um, so um, I have to say, when I first heard about him, I found him to be quite an objectionable figure. But I hear so many people who are kind of slyly, um, in sly admiration for him, that I, he's starting to win me over a bit these days. He's a bit ballsy, isn't he, at the end of the he's, day? He's very ballsy. And, and a lot of the information that we know about him is only very recently available. His papers are at the Library of Congress. Um, but he wrote this massive report about Taiwan, a huge, like, 300-page book, which was only published, uh, you know, widely uh, in 2012. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of the material around the genre and his life is only really coming to light and coming into scholarship now. At the end of the day... And I and I still stick to this, but obviously the Brits and the Americans and the Europeans just didn't. Why can't we just leave people alone? Just leave <laughs> them alone to do their own thing and live their own lives with their own culture. Okay, so they massacred a load of people. In the West, yes, it's frowned upon, but to them it was something completely and utterly. Why can't we just respect that? Well, yes, I mean, the, the, the crew of the rover were intruding on the territory of the Paiwan. Um, the, uh, and this becomes an, a matter of, of international law. You see, I said there was a confederation, right? I said there's a group of tribes and Tokitok is their leader. And the Chinese are there saying, we can't really be responsible for that part of the island. It's full of savages, their word, not mine. Um, so it's not really Chinese territory. And so you have the foreign powers, particularly the Chandra, saying, could you say that again? It's not Chinese territory. This, this bit of the island doesn't belong to you. So if we were to show up there and like build a base and stuff, you wouldn't object. And the Chinese are like, oh, did we say, no, we didn't mean that. No. So, so there's that kind of gotcha game going on about this part uh, of the island. If, uh, and and uh, there's a concept, I think, which the British came up with in India, the doctrine of lapse. If you can't look after your own land, we'll come and look after it for you. You know, so, so, so there's that kind of attitude underway as well. Um, and, and, and uh, but aside from the fact that our shipping has now developed to the point where it's good enough to get you to Taiwan, but not good enough to not smash into it, uh, there's this other issue of why people are encroaching on their lands in the first place. There are settlers um, from mainland China who are building little villages and farming crops and, and hunting in lands that, as far as the Paiwan are concerned, belong to them. Um and uh, also there is a, a commodity uh, in Taiwan, uh, which is constantly attracting more and more unwelcome um, uh, encroachments on tribal lands. I mean, basically, Taiwan is divided between east and west. Um, the western side of Taiwan is where all the towns are and where the settlements have been for the longest. The, the eastern side is tribal land. And the reason that people are, are, are crossing the mountains, are going into these tribal lands, the, the number one reason is, believe it or not, camphor. You're joking. And camphor. Because um, camphor, you might associate it with uh with rather hot massage patches or with insect repellent or something like that but camphor throughout the later 19th century becomes increasingly important as a commodity uh, because it's a crucial ingredient in early plastics it's a crucial ingredient in celluloid and it's vital for smokeless gunpowder and something a crazy like 80 percent of the world's camphor trees are in taiwan um, and here's the thing as well when you when you 
when you uh, harvest camphor, uh, you need to get a camphor tree. You cut it down. You smash it up into wood chips, and you and you bake those wood chips so that the, the camphor oil comes off, and then you, and that's how you collect it. And of course, what this does is it destroys the tree. So then you've got to go and find another tree. And so the the camphor foresters are moving further and further inland. Um, and there's no plantation. You can't just, you know, make a tree spring up a year later. You, you've got to find these you know, hundred year old trees. So um, they're, they're moving more and more on tribal lands. The Chinese regard camphor wood as lumber. Therefore, it comes under the uh, jurisdiction of the Chinese Navy and you're not allowed to harvest it. So people are harvesting it anyway, and that makes it illegal. So they're outlaws. So they don't care about the laws anyway. So they're shooting any tribes when they run into. And this is what is generating this kind of this constant gaia. Of, of things getting worse and worse uh, on 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 the edge of uh, um, jurisdiction, Chinese Chinese jurisdiction. Right, we're going to talk about another shipwreck. This time, we're right. not talking about the West. We're not talking about steamships. We're talking about fishing boats. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So in 1871, something goes wrong. And because the something goes wrong, why are the fishermen not protected at this point? Right. So uh, Legendre gets this deal. Um, he shakes hands or whatever. You Hold have on, to he's back. He's now back. Oh, no, no, no. no. This, this, is, I mean, this is what Legendre arranges. Legendre was actually still in place when the second shipwreck happened. Okay. Um, but but he, he, left, he left office soon afterwards. Um, he gets this deal uh, with Tokitok um, that... If if a if a ship gets wrecked on the coast, they can fly a red flag, and tribesmen will understand. And Tokidok goes, "Yep, fine, that's good, that that's fine." I mean, I don't think the Bortan people are going to listen because they never pay attention to me, but everyone else is going to play along. That'll be fine. Um, and so, uh, you know that that works out um, that works out very well. Um, but uh, the ship that gets wrecked in 1871 is a fishing boat from the Ryukyu Islands. So the crew are all Japanese, the Okinawan fishermen. Uh, and they come ashore and um, they are kind of welcomed. But it's, you know, we're dealing with an impenetrable language barrier and we're dealing with um, a tribe of people who are overloaded by the presence of several dozen new arrivals. They don't necessarily have the food to give them, you know. Um, it's not clear who's paying for what. Um, and the, you get this sense that the, the fishermen do a kind of dine and as far as far as the tribesmen are concerned, they do a kind of dine and dash and they take some food off these people and then they try and try and leave without paying uh, and they they get massacred. Um, and so the Japanese are now showing. Uh, so, in fact, one of the genre's last acts um, uh, as the consul was to say, I think we should send another force over and establish that Japanese people are also entitled to the same protections. Um and in fact, he he hopes to 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 go along and do that. And uh, but he's he's uh, shortly afterwards he he's leaving office in a hurry, um, um, and doesn't get to uh, to actually do that. 
So the Japanese are left um, with this this problem, and it takes several years for them to work out how to deal with it. Um, they send an envoy to China saying, we want reparations for this. The Chinese say, well, we're not really responsible for that part of the island. And so um, eventually, uh, the Japanese send a military force. Um, a man called Saigo Tsugumichi um, leaves Tokyo with um, uh, a very, very large military force. So large, in fact, they have to make several trips to kind of ship all the stuff. Um which, which causes trouble because when people ask him to leave, he said, I haven't got enough boats to leave. You know, I've, I've got, you know, all this stuff. Uh, and they actually land uh, on the southern um, coast of Taiwan uh, and march into the hinterland and start fighting uh, the, uh, the local tribes. Um, and, uh, and, and this becomes very controversial because the Chinese are there saying, we do not want you on our land. And the Japanese are saying, well, you said it wasn't your land. So we're just kind of uh, sorting out our own, our, our own policing here. But hold on, isn't this completely illegal to kind of, because in theory they kind of invade Taiwan, don't they? Yes, it is. So um, the, the the attitude of the Japanese was this is a policing action. The Chinese have abrogated responsibility. The attitude of the Chinese is we own Taiwan. You're not supposed to invade our country. We didn't ask you to come here. Um, and the, the language of a policing action is incredibly nuanced and incredibly delicate. We see it in Finland in uh, 1939 when the Finns proclaim the, the, the People's Republic of, of Finland and then invite the Russians in to help them put down rebels. We see it in Ukraine when we have all of these little states that declare themselves to exist um, down the eastern side of Ukraine and then they invite the Russians in to help. Um, and so um, what the Japanese are doing is is, is they're saying, well, we, we're, we're here at the uh, invitation of the Chinese and the Chinese are going, we didn't invite you. And so this is going on at a diplomatic level. Um, and uh, it becomes quite controversial because the transport ships the Japanese are using aren't all Japanese. One of them is English. One of them is American. And so the American envoy shows up and he says, we do not approve of any American personnel serving in a Japanese military action. That, uh, that it constitutes an invasion of Taiwan. Um, and Saigo Tsugumichi had uh, two American military advisors, um, and, and they were technically not allowed to be with him. Um, and there's a ship called the New York, which was supposed to be a transport ship uh, moving uh, men and materiel uh, to Taiwan for Saigo's um, expedition. Um, and the Americans showed up and impounded it. They said, you cannot send this ship. It is a contravention of American law for you to assist in this unsanctioned military action. And the Japanese, fantastically, had already paid for the ship. And so they ended up suing the American government in California um, for, for breaking their contract. Um, and funnily enough, uh, they didn't get very far and the case was, was thrown out. But they, they were so aggrieved and, and took such umbrage that they, they weren't actually allowed to, to, to use this American ship. They did actually uh, take legal action back in the States. Who actually comes up with, with this whole scheme? Because this is my head's hurting. Okay. Well, <laughs> this is just, this is manic. It's just, it's so insane that you just, you would not think logically to do anything like this. No, it, it would take a crazy person to come up with that idea, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like uh, our friend Charles. Funnily enough, Alina, when the Japanese show up in Beijing to talk to Li Hong Zhang, uh, who's the leading official uh, in, in charge of foreign affairs, Li Hongzhang 
is absolutely incensed that they've brought a white man with them. He's like, this is an Asian issue. We're supposed to be settling this ourselves. Who the fuck is this guy? And the Japanese say, this is Charles Legendre. He's our new advisor. Oh, dear God he almighty. had to leave his previous job in uh, China under a bit of a cloud. But he is now the advisor to the Japanese government on Taiwanese Aboriginal affairs. And he says that um, we should go and attack this island. And in fact, oh. so so they, so they have this huge argument, and Legendre is there. He's waiting for the gotcha moment. He's waiting for Li Hongjiang to say, "Well, we're not really responsible for that part of the island." And the moment he says it, it's like whack, let off a klaxon. Now we can do it. You've given up your rights to a third of that island, and we're going to take it over ourselves. And, and Charles Legendre actually wants to go with the Japanese expedition himself, but he's arrested by his own government in Shanghai. Um, because he's interfering in a way that the Americans really don't want him to. Um, and so, uh, it's, uh, unfortunately, the nutter who came up with that scheme is the same nutter who came up with the previous scheme. Um, this is what I find so fascinating about Charles Legendre, is that he is this shadowy figure for a decade, steering Japanese foreign policy. All of these imperialist decisions that late 19th century Japan is making, which the Japanese get pilloried for, by historians, are actually from the playbook of Charles Legendre, who's only working for them because the Americans wouldn't do what he wanted. I'm surprised, but not surprised. Not surprised, yeah, exactly. So talk to us about, I mean, at the end of the day, is I think this is a failure, clearly, but is it? Well, the, the mission itself was a failure. Um, the the Japanese were they, they lost quite. I mean, there are one or two war prints from the period of the Japanese valiantly fighting the tribesmen, um, but they lost most of their men to disease um, because they they were ill-equipped, uh, and the Japanese army notoriously at the time was ill-equipped to deal with uh, sanitation, and in fact, you know, malaria and um, um, various other afflictions uh, killed many more Japanese uh, on this mission um, than the the local tribesmen did. And so the Japanese kind of went home with a tail between their legs after a while, um, and and little more was said about it. So in that sense, yes, the the expedition was a failure. However, it was a it had a very sneaky and underhand uh, after effect, which was that the Ryukyu Islands are this long chain of islands that go from Japan all the way down to Taiwan, and um, they were a tributary kingdom of China. Um, and you know, for hundreds of years, um, but also because they were a bit dodgy, they were also a tributary kingdom of Japan. So the Ryukyu Islands had always existed in this kind of liminal space where they were kind of Chinese and kind of Japanese. If the Chinese had had, I think, a greater military presence, they could have said the fishermen from the Ryukyu Islands are Chinese subjects. This is an internal matter. Piss off but that didn't seem to occur to them. Instead, when the Japanese showed up and said, you killed some of our fishermen, we're going to deal with this, the Chinese entered negotiations as if that original premise was true. And so what that effectively did is it cut the Ryukyu Islands off from China. And within 10 years, the Ryukyu Islands were a Japanese province. They were, they were the Okinawa prefecture and have remained part of Japan ever since. So the invasion of Taiwan didn't achieve anything in Taiwan, but it became a very handy lever for basically the official Japanese takeover of the Ryukyu Islands. You've 
kind of not answered something but I've got to backtrack on this actually a little bit I'm mm. a little bit annoyed mm-hmm. I do love you really but I'm a little bit annoyed because you haven't answered one thing because you mm-hmm. kind of stopped at a really important point and I've only <laughs> just clocked it right now that right. you haven't right did anyone ever collect the reward for the bones of Mercy Hunt not to my knowledge I I don't think there was enough of Mercy Hunt left to collect um but the thing is is that the story about her her disappearance and the reward and this kind of got to catch them all assembly of all the bits and pieces from the ship achieved this very very powerful status in local legend um and so it became a kind of a matter of tribal law um rather rather fantastically there was one guy showed up at one of the villages and offered the uh, the villagers the princely sum of 15 dollars if they would give him the bones of mercy hunt and the villagers were like we hear it's a lot more than that uh, and we don't have them anyway we think that the dogs have got one of our feet um but anyway so years later when i say years later i mean in 1931 um somebody found a skeleton on the beach at kunding uh in uh, in south taiwan uh, and it wasn't mercy hunt it was some anonymous person you know there have been many many shipwrecks on the coast um so much so that they have a temple there to the lords of 10,000 responses, which is the, the, the hungry ghosts of people who are lost at sea. Um, and so these bones were someone, you know, someone, foreign sailor had been washed up on shore. Um, who knows when, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they took the bones and they put them in the temple to the lords of 10,000 responses. And someone said, oh, I know who that is. That's that, that's that red-haired woman. That's that, um, that princess who, who was shipwrecked here. And they're like, we, I'm sorry, we don't know what you're talking about. Because he goes, he goes I, I know the story. Hang on. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. There was a shipwreck and there was a red-haired princess and someone had to um, collect her stuff. And like she's got clogs and she's got a, 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 like a, a, a hat and, and we have to bring them all together. Otherwise, we'll be cursed. So this becomes a temple um, to someone called the Princess of the Eight Treasures. Uh, and it's an incredibly garbled story made from all kinds of, of misprisions and, and mishearings. I mean, you, I've told you the story of Mercy Hunt. You know who she is. I don't know if she had red hair or not, but Angmor, red hair, is a, is a microaggression in Asia for, for foreigners. Uh, red, the red-haired people are the, are the Dutch and the English. And the, don't uh, tell and the Chris American. that. Poor Chris, <laughs> our little red-haired man. Um, well, they'll, they'll tell him that himself if he ever goes there. Um, so, so, you've got the this kind of this very garbled story that someone was lost and she was important and we had to get stuff together actually becomes the site of a temple in south taiwan and then uh, in 2008 there's this old lady uh who's who's clearly losing her marbles who gets lost in the woods for several days and when she comes out she says the red-haired princess appeared to me she was naked and she tried to steal my clothes and she says eight of us are going to die unless we you know um, get her stuff together um and uh, so there's this kind of entire local industry about fueling this 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 kind of the worship of of the princess of the eight treasures. Uh, there was a book written about her explaining who she was, which was complete nonsense. It said she was a Dutch girl in the 1700s in the 1600s who was off to meet her fiance at Fort Zeelandia, and none of it's true. Um, but 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 by 2015. The, uh, one of the spirit mediums in the area has said, I've just had a word with the princess of the eight treasures. And she says she's happy now and she's become a goddess. Oh, really? Yeah. So happy ending, really. 
a happy ending for the spiritual medium that probably got paid to say these sorts of things. You're very cynical. <laughs> oh, this has been really interesting. But what we're going to do, we are going to get you back to do more Taiwan right. in a couple of weeks' time. So when your book comes out, we'll do a little bit more. We'll get another recording in to talk a bit more about this because there's so much to do. Oh, and one more question before we do finish. Mm. Can you actually go and visit this temple? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it, it's still there. It, it's in. Um, it's, it's not far from Kunding, which is a, a, a tourist resort now. I mean, the beach where this all happened is now. Um, uh, you know, it, it's got people sunbathing on it. Um, so, uh, but you, and so there's a whole kind of local industry of, uh, you know, surfing and swimming and you know little fish restaurants and stuff. What you can't do is go diving because the Seven Sisters, the currents at the Seven Sisters are so dangerous that the, the local diving schools won't take people there. Um, so, you know, even today, it's hazardous uh, to people, although they do have a lighthouse there now, which was finally put in place um, after uh, intense foreign pressure. I am dying to go to Taiwan, so that's definitely on my list of places to go. So thank you for that. And we will get you back. But do remind our listeners in the meantime, if they want to pre-order a copy of your book, do remind them what the name of the book is. It's called uh, Rebel Island, uh, The Incredible Story of Taiwan. And that's just the preface, what we've covered today. Perfect. So we will get you back on pretty soon, hopefully. And we'll talk a little bit more about Taiwan. So thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, we will also get that book in our bookshop. But until probably the next recording, we will get that up there. So Chris usually does the spiel. I'm not very good. It's like, don't buy from the rainforest company and because then Jonathan gets a better cut and we get a better cut. And it's, yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me.